Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Back in the late 1970s, the BBC debuted a science education show called Connections. The host was James Burke, an affable, professorish guy, usually dressed in a beige polyester leisure suit, who gave the term interdisciplinary a whole new meaning. His thing was to take disparate developments in science and technology and show how they were actually interconnected in ways that led to our modern world. Nothing, he demonstrated, existed in isolation over the long term. One show connected the invention of the cannon to the first movie project in the late 1800s. There were obviously a lot of steps in between, but Burke was able to draw a very clear line. Another demonstrated the few degrees of separation between drinking gin and tonics to astronomers discovering the true sides of the universe. Kind of a stretch, but he did it. Connections remains one of my all-time favorite TV shows, and to be honest, more than a little of this program is inspired by the way James Burke was able to tie things together. I've always wanted to create a proper Connections-type show, but it's been hard because it requires so much knowledge and research and analysis and synthesis. And if I'm honest, what you're about to hear has taken years to pull together. I hope I can do James Burke justice. Here is my attempt to create some connections between rock music and some seemingly unconnected inventions, events, and discoveries from the past. This is the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. If you measure your connected, the writing's on the wall. But if your mind's neglected, stumble, you might fall. Stumble, you might fall. Okay, we had to start with that. Stereo MCs and Connected from 1992. Hello again, I'm Alan Cross, and we're going to attempt to make some wild connections leading from our music back to some decidedly non-musical things in the past. The goal is to give you a completely different spin on the origin stories of what we listen to today. Let's start with this. We have been using various metals since ancient times. As time passed, we learned how to fashion metal into different shapes. If you could afford it, you could acquire sheets of metal, iron, brass, copper, lead, or some kind of old ally. These sheets had been hammered flat, and these metal sheets were great for things like roofing and shields and armor. But creating these things, these flat pieces, took a lot of time and a lot of muscle power. There were attempts at mechanizing the process as far back as Greece in the first century AD. But it wasn't until the late 17th century that mills, using the power of water, were used to flatten hunks of metal using big rotating cylinders made of iron. One of the best metals for flattening turned out to be steel, the manufacture of which had started in England by about 1614. The best source of raw materials came from iron bars imported from Sweden, an industry that was kickstarted by a slave trader from France named Louis de Geer. By the latter part of the 18th century, a product called tin plate sheet metal was being used for everything from roofing to carriages. It was cheap, lightweight, fireproof, and very tough. And it could be pressed very, very thin, so the edges had a near razor-like finish. Birmingham, England became one of the centers of the British Industrial Revolution, largely because of the textile industry in the city. And as it became more mechanized, supporting industries were needed. And that included a newfangled thing called the steam engine, 
which was also put to work in the mining industry nearby. And where you have mining, you have steel production. The population of Birmingham increased as a constant supply of labor was needed to work in the factories, including the new sheet metal plants and other fabrication factories. Young men with little prospects of higher education got jobs in these factories, and that included Tony Iommi, a 17-year-old who dabbled in the guitar. He tried being a plumber, but the factory that manufactured metal rings seemed to be a better idea, at least at first. It wasn't, and Tony wanted out, so he gave his notice. On his last day of work, a day he wanted to skip, but his mother convinced him that it was only proper that he work out his commitment, Tony was working on the line when the accident happened. His job was to take a piece of sheet metal, make some welds, and then pass it on to someone else. But on that last day, the person who normally sent him the parts to weld called in sick. So, Tony was reassigned to a huge press that operated something like a guillotine. Tony was very inexperienced on the thing, and as he was trying to work it, the press came down as Tony's right hand was in the way. I quote, Bang! It came down! It just took the ends off my fingers. I actually pulled them off. As I pulled my hand back, it sort of pulled them off. I was left with two stocks, the bones sticking out on the top of the finger. I went to the hospital and they cut the bones off and said, well, you might as well forget about playing the guitar. But his foreman felt bad that the accident might have ended Tony's ability to play the guitar. So this foreman played Tony a recording by guitarist Django Reinhardt. Reinhardt had suffered terrible burns to his hand, leaving him with just two workable fingers. Yet he became a master of the guitar. That inspired Tony to keep going. But it was painful. To get around that problem, he fashioned a couple of plastic thimbles from a bottle of dishwashing soap and wrapped them in leather from an old leather jacket. That helped, but it didn't solve the problem. First, he couldn't feel the strings through the thimbles, which meant he had to press down very, very hard. Second, soloing became tough, so he concentrated on playing heavy power chords. And third, he couldn't bend standard guitar strings very well, so he strung his guitar with banjo strings. And to make things even easier, he tuned his guitar so that the strings were quite loose. Technically, his guitar was tuned down low to C-sharp. Put this all together, and you have the distinctive guitar sound that made his band, Black Sabbath, famous. It was heavy, it was sinister, it was powerful. And the Sabbath sound went a long way to creating the sound of heavy metal as we know it today. A little more than 10 years after Sabbath really took hold, a new generation of Sabbath-inspired and metal-adjacent bands started to emerge out of the Pacific Northwest. Many of them had guitarists that copied Tony's no-fingers tuning. That drop D, or in Tony's case, drop C-sharp, became the foundation of grunge. Here's an example. Nirvana's heart-shaped box, recorded using a drop-D tuning inspired by the sound of Tony Iommi's Black Sabbath guitar, which was directly caused by an industrial accident involving sheet metal. See all the connections that were involved? Okay, let's try another. This one involves oil. Oil was first discovered in Pennsylvania in 1859. At the time, nobody really knew what petroleum could be used for, but it did burn. 
and oil was slippery. There might be other uses, too. The result was the Pennsylvania oil rush, which was centered around the town of Titusville in the far northwest part of the state. This was the start of the modern oil industry. Companies started drilling wells everywhere. In 1870, Standard Oil, run by John D. Rockefeller, one of the richest people in modern history, was calling the shots and generating mountains and mountains of cash. The entire Rockefeller family benefited greatly, and there were a great many heirs and heiresses who inherited fortunes. As Standard Oil got bigger and bigger, a young man in Basel, Switzerland, was mourning the death of his parents. With nothing to keep him in Europe, Adolf Rickenbacker moved to America, landing in New York City, and then moving to a more permanent home in Columbus, Ohio. And that's where he met Charlotte. Charlotte was tangled up somewhere in the Rockefeller family tree, and as such was one of those many heiresses of the standard oil fortune. In other words, Adolf married into money, a lot of it. The company lived in Illinois for a bit before moving to California in 1918. Despite having no problems with cash, Adolf insisted on having a day job as a machinist and an engineer. When he opened his own machine shop, Charlotte worked as the stenographer. At the same time all this was going on, the United States was sinking its hooks into the Kingdom of Hawaii, which it had annexed following the overthrow of Queen Liliuokalani in 1893. Within a few years, there was a craze on the mainland for all things Hawaiian. I mean, new American territory. All right, let's, uh, let's see what they got. This included the ukulele and something called the Spanish guitar which had been introduced to Hawaii by Spanish and Mexican sailors before the annexation. The native Hawaiians repurposed the Spanish guitar, preferring to play it vertically, as we do today, rather than laying flat in your lap. By 1915, the now renamed Hawaiian guitar was all the rage in certain sectors of America. One person who was intrigued was Adolf Rickenbacker. With the money from the machine shop and Charlotte's Standard Oil inheritance, and his partner George Beauchamp and a couple of other guys, they started making Hawaiian guitars. The problem, though, was that they were too quiet. If anyone was going to hear these newfangled things, they had to be louder. So together with a partner named George Beecham and a violin repairman named John DePira, they worked to create a louder Hawaiian guitar. Beecham had a wild Jay Gatsby-type Roaring Twenties cousin named Teddy Kleinmeier. Teddy was just 21 and he had just inherited a million dollars from his rich rancher daddy, who also had interests in the oil market. And Teddy was doing his absolute best to blow all this money. When he heard what Beecham was doing, he gave him a check for $12,500. And that helped create the National String Instrument Company, which got down to business of making guitars. Okay, hang on, back up. Before we can move on to the inevitable invention of the electric guitar, we have to go someplace else somebody had to invent electronics. First, America needed access to electricity. The electrification of America, a story in itself, was a major deal in the early 20th century. Then, in 1911, Lee DeForest unveiled the vacuum tube, which could make electrical signals stronger. This is the very foundation of what would become known as an amplifier. And third, somebody needed a way to turn an amplified electric signal back into sound. And in 1921, General Electric and AT&T created the speaker. Electricity, the vacuum tube, and the speaker all first came together with the introduction of the radio. Amplifiers and speakers were then used for PA systems and sound systems for theaters. 
This technology attracted the attention of Adolf Rickenbacker and George Beecham. They came up with the idea of using electricity to amplify the vibration of the steel strings of their Hawaiian guitar. The major breakthrough was a pickup, which was nothing more than a magnet with a copper wire wrapped around it. When the metal strings were strummed, they vibrated through the electrical field of the pickup, creating an electrical signal, which traveled down a wire to an amplifier filled with vacuum tubes, which in turn made the signal louder and transmitted everything to a speaker, which turned those signals back into sound. And this was the birth of the electric guitar. And that's how you can link the discovery of oil in Pennsylvania to a song like this. Black Soundgarden, with a song based on the electric guitar, which was made possible by the inheritances of a couple of people more than 100 years ago. More connections on the way, and wait until you hear how rock was indirectly birthed out of World War II. Let's take a journey back to 2003. Canadian teen sensation Avril Lavigne was topping the charts and turning the music industry upside down. But what if I told you that the Avril Lavigne we know and love might not be the same Avril? What? Did Avril die? Was she replaced by a doppelganger? I'm Joanne McNally, and I'm doing a deep dive into a notorious internet conspiracy. Who replaced Avril Lavigne? Listen wherever you get your podcasts. I call this episode Connections, and yes, it is modeled after that BBC science and history show of the same name hosted by James Burke. I'm trying to draw together some seemingly random historical events to show how everything is connected and how these connections created our music. I want to spend some time on how World War II led to the birth of rock and roll. Before the war, jazz was the thing, specifically the big band sound. These were orchestras of 10 or more people led by a big name, Paul Whiteman, Tommy Dorsey, Benny Goodman, and so on. The star of the big band era was the band leader. Everyone in the orchestra, including any featured singer, was merely an employee who did exactly what the band leader ordered. It was all very, very rigid. When the war started, big bands started to suffer. Many players were drafted into the military, making it harder to find musicians to fill spots in the orchestra. The dance halls, where the bands used to play, started closing down. And even if there was a hall that needed a band, gasoline rationing made touring difficult and expensive. Meanwhile, some of the more ambitious musicians had grown tired of taking orders from the band leader. After a gig, they'd all congregate together someplace to jam, these were long nights of improvisations where you were challenged to show exactly how good of a player you were. The result was a splintering of the jazz sound into something that became known as bebop, experimental, very complex virtuosity made by musicians for musicians. And one thing was for sure, you could not dance to this stuff because there was often no discernible beat or sing along to any melody because there often wasn't one. This was just fine by these jazz guys. Their goal was to take jazz into a completely different direction, which they did. Charlie Parker, Sonny Rollins, Dexter Gordon, Miles Davis, Dizzy Gillespie, Thelonious Monk. Their work helped put the nail in the coffin of the big bands. At the same time all this was happening, there was a crippling strike ordered by the American Federation of Musicians. Its president, a guy by the name of James Petrillo, was outraged at how American record companies were paying out royalties. So, 
as of July 31st, 1942, right in the middle of the war, no union musician was allowed to make any records for any record company. This obviously made it impossible for anyone associated with a big band to make a living. You could still play live on the radio, but you couldn't sell any records. And really, how many slots were there available for big band performances on a radio station? Plus, you couldn't play any gigs because the dance halls were closing down. And if you could get a gig, could you find enough people to fill all the positions in the orchestra? And how many guys, and they were almost always guys, were moving on to the growing bebop scene? Meanwhile, big band singers, which, remember, were employees of the big band leaders, were not obligated by the union to strike. And this is because they were singers, not musicians. Interesting loophole. This meant that they were free to step out on their own, which they did. And many of them became stars as solo performers, a very new thing for the time. And names included Bing Crosby and Frank Sinatra and Perry Como, all former big band singers. They were no longer props for the orchestra leader. They were stars and personalities unto themselves. The strike got more complicated. Without going too much into the weeds, there were a bunch of loopholes. A singer could record a song a cappella. No musicians, right? Or they could record a foreign song not registered with ASCAP, the main performing rights organization at the time. Not covered by the agreement, not covered by the strike. ASCAP also did not consider country musicians, Western performers, and R&B acts to be real musicians. As a result, they were not covered by any prohibitions, so they were free to do their thing. And in the absence of big bands, these sounds began to spread very fast. I mean, what else were you going to listen to? Radio stations changed, too, in a couple of important ways. First, local American stations were allowed to have local programming after 7 p.m. Some had live performances, but it became much more cost-effective to have the announcers play records instead of introducing live acts. This is how some imported orchestral music made it on the air, but it also made room for country, western, hillbilly, and R&B records. People started to hear other genres on the radio for the very first time. Boogie-woogie, jump blues, swing, gospel, spirituals. A whole new melting pot of sounds was created and disseminated through the radio as a result of the big band problems and the musician strike. These sounds began to mix and mutate, and it was this kind of thing America needed to help put the trauma of the first half of the 1940s behind them. Long story short, this mingling of new sounds indirectly caused by World War II and the musician strike created the conditions for the birth of rock and roll. I want to riff on this a little bit more, but let's contemplate all the disparate factors that went into eventually creating music that sounds like this. Here's another connection that I find fascinating. In 1912, a 10-year-old boy named Jim fell off a wall and hit his head. He was okay, except that his right eardrum broke and his hearing on that side was never the same. Fast forward to 1941. The German Luftwaffe tried to bomb Britain into submission with a campaign known as the Blitz, and Jim, now 38, had been excused from military service because of his bad ear. One night during that year, the air raid warnings went off and Jim found himself waiting things out at his mother's place. Visiting that night was Jin Mohin, a friend of mom. Staying with her was her sister Mary. Jim and Mary had known each other casually for some time, but that night they really got to know each other. 
bombs falling, you know, emotions running strong, whatever. They fell in love, and after a short engagement, they were married on April 15, 1941. Then on June 18, 1942, they had a son. They named him James Paul McCartney. Had Jim not fallen off that wall in 1912 and ruined his hearing, he would have been drafted into the Army. And had the Luftwaffe not bombed Liverpool that night in 1941, he would have never had a chance to get to know Mary so well. And if that hadn't happened, there would have never been a son. And without that son, no Beatles. Think about that for a second. Here's one more story about how World War II led to the creation of our music. Between the start of the war in 1939 and 1957, all men between the ages of 18 to 41 were expected to report for national service in Britain. Many were sent to fight in the 1940s, and even after the war was over, young men were required to do their duty. However, that obligation officially came to an end in 1957. Anyone born on or after October 1st, 1939, was now exempt. And that meant that the young men in a new group called the Quarrymen wouldn't have to worry about going into the army, so they kept at it. John Lennon was born in October 1940, so he scraped by, and future Beatle Ringo Starr was born on July 7th, 1940. And in November 1960, when compulsory service ended altogether, all four members of the Beatles managed to avoid going into the army. But there's more. Without having to worry about going into the military and with time on their hands, untold thousands of young British men started picking up guitars and forming bands. In just the Liverpool area alone, there were more than 400 bands regularly playing around town by the summer of 1961. And in London, that number was much, much higher. After a couple of years, the Beatles broke through. British music took off, and the British invasion of North America started, all in large part to the end of national service in the United Kingdom. Back in a moment with a couple of more seemingly random connections that ended up making our music possible. I have a couple more connection stories before we're done. And this one involves a line that runs through from the discovery of aluminum to ska. Aluminum is one of the most important elements we know. It's abundant, stable, light, strong, impervious to rust, reflects light, and can be used for a million different things. The ancient Greeks knew about aluminum at least 2,500 years ago. But it wasn't until 1824 that a Danish physicist and chemist named Hans Christian Orsted figured out how to produce aluminum metal. It was an arduous process, and for a while, a hunk of aluminum was actually worth more than gold. But by 1889, an efficient way of creating aluminum was discovered, and that required the purification of a mineral called bauxite. It turns out that Jamaica contains some of the largest known deposits of bauxite anywhere on the planet. And in the early 1950s, Bauxite mining began in the country and exported by the Reynolds Metal Company. Other companies like Alcan and Kaiser also moved in, and the first shipment out was 1952. But this kind of wide-scale mining had some serious social effects. Farmland was expropriated, and people were kicked off their land. Thousands of Jamaicans were displaced from the countryside 
and moved into the cities, especially the capital of Kingston. The ghettos expanded with many, many unemployed and desperate people. This exacerbated the already wide class division between the island's British colonial masters and its native inhabitants. With live bands out of reach, nobody could afford them, Jamaicans developed sound system culture. These were portable DJ setups, mobile discos if you want, that were set up in open spaces called lawns every weekend. These sound system crews, and there were many of them, all competing fiercely with one another for attention, would find new ways to get the party started and to keep it going with calypso, soul music, and American blues and R&B. Starting at about late 1959, this mix of music began to coalesce into something with a distinctive Jamaican sound. Long story short, it was nicknamed ska. In 1962, Jamaica became an independent nation, and this new ska music was exactly what the country needed. It was good-time music, and it was homegrown. Meanwhile, Britain was suffering a labor shortage and decided to make it easier for citizens of the Commonwealth to immigrate to the home country. A lot of people in Jamaica took the British government up on their offer, and of course, they brought their music with them. By 1964, the Jamaican diaspora in Britain was being serviced by at least three record labels that brought music from home. Eventually, it was discovered by white kids, especially those identifying as mods, and spread the sounds even further. The big breakthrough was a worldwide hit by Millie Small called My Boy Lollipop, produced by Englishman Chris Blackwell and distributed through his brand new Island Records label. After a brief burst of popularity, ska, also known as Bluebeat, receded for a couple of decades until it was discovered by some white kids from Coventry who gave this working-class music from Jamaica a new twist by adding working-class punk from England. And we've been skanking ever since. The specials with Concrete Jungle from 1979. For two years, ska was one of the biggest sounds in the UK, but it burned out in the early 1980s. However, ska never went away and has popped up again and again and again over the last 40 years. And it remains one of the most popular and universal sounds in the world today. And to think it all started with the discovery that you could make aluminum from bauxite, and the best bauxite was in Jamaica. One more connection story. It involved a convoluted route to modern musical recordings that involves fingers being burned by cigarettes. I know. It begins with a New Jersey inventor named Oberlin Smith, who usually made machine tools. After seeing his first phonograph in 1878, the year after Thomas Edison unveiled the thing, Oberlin became fascinated with the idea of recorded sound. His idea was to create permanent magnetic impressions on a cotton or silk thread that was embedded with either steel dust or clippings of wire. Those bits of metal could be then magnetized to hold audio information. It was totally theoretical. No working unit was ever built, but the concept was sound. Other people saw his treatise in a technical journal and took up the cause. And for years, various people applied his principles to either a long roll of wire or a spool of steel tape. Neither worked very well, and they weren't very practical. Then came Fritz Flumer. Smokers, he discovered, had a problem. If they forgot they had a cigarette in their hand, it would eventually burn all the way down to the knuckles. Ouch. So, Flumer came up with a solution. He developed a process for putting metal stripes on cigarettes so that they would only burn down so far. So, no more scarred knuckles. 
And, as an engineer, Fritz was also aware of the various experiments involving magnetic recording using wires. His idea was to take what he learned with cigarette foil and apply it to the problem. In 1927, he created a very thin paper strip that was coated with iron oxide and held to the paper with lacquer. A patent was granted the following year, and in 1932, he licensed the rights to his invention, which he called the magnetophone. And in 1935, the machine had its debut at the Berlin Radio Show. However, because of political tensions, and here's where we get into World War II again, the Germans kept this technology secret. The Nazis confused the Allies during the war by broadcasting long performances by orchestras, hours and hours and hours without anybody taking a break. How is this possible? The Nazis also broadcast different speeches by Hitler simultaneously from different cities. Hours and hours and hours of speeches. How was that possible? And where was the Fuhrer? It was only after the war when Major Jack Mullen, who was helping mop up after the Nazis, discovered a couple of these magnetic tape machines at a secret broadcast post. He got permission to take the gear back to the U.S., which he could do because all the patents the Germans had were made invalid by the war. So Mullen disassembled everything, shipped it home, and set up a company devoted to exploiting this new technology based out of San Francisco. One day during a failed demonstration to somebody in the film industry, an assistant to Bing Crosby happened to see what was going on and relayed details of the new machine to his boss. Remember, Bing Crosby had once been a big band employee, but was set free as a result of the musician strike in 1942. Bing had become a big-time solo radio star. The problem was that he'd have to broadcast his show twice, once on the East Coast and another three hours later for all those on the West Coast. He realized that this magnetic tape machine would solve all these problems. He could just tape his East Coast show and call it a day. So that means he could be doing more of what he wanted to do instead of having to hang around the studio and do the show again. And Bing really wanted to spend time golfing. Bing was so interested in the new machine that he dropped $50,000, more than $600,000 in today's money, so Mullen could perfect his machine. And the result was the Ampex 200 reel-to-reel tape recorder. For the first time ever, recorded performances could be edited. And thanks to the work of guitarist and tinkerer Les Paul, it was possible to overdub parts on previously made recordings. This changed music forever. Before magnetic tape, the purpose of a recording session was to capture a live performance as accurately as possible. You wanted to preserve reality. But with magnetic tape, you could improve on reality, creating recordings that could never be performed live in real life. And recording technology has never been the same since. Oh, and one more connection. The extra time the reel-to-reel machine allowed Bing Crosby to spend on the golf course eventually inspired him to create new things for golf. Thanks to the reel-to-reel machine, he was able to invent the pro-celebrity golf tournament, turning him into the original fundraising pop singer. Here's a song that probably has close to 200 different tracks all mixed together, and it was all made possible by a guy who wanted to keep people from having their fingers burned by their smokes. History is such a funny thing. It zigs and zags and gets all tangled up and interconnected in ways that are hardly obvious. 
It's only when we stumble across weird relationships between people and events and technologies and accidents that you realize that everything really is connected in strange and wonderful ways. I know there has to be more of these weird connections that ended up creating various aspects of our music world, so I'm going to keep looking for them. And when I've discovered enough, we'll do a program like this again. Meanwhile, you should work on catching up with the Ongoing History Archives. There are hundreds of podcasts available, all free and available from any podcast platform you choose to patronize. Please binge away. I'm always lurking around Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. You can look for me there. And there's my website, a journal of musicalthings.com, which is updated every single day. Get the free daily newsletter too. Oh, and we can always have an offline conversation through Alan and alancross.ca. Technical Productions by Rob Johnston. We'll talk to you next time. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts.